Welcome to today's discussion. Uh, my name is Glenn Deason, and uh, with me here is uh, Alexander Mercurius from the Duran. And we're joined by former senior British diplomat, uh, Alistair Crook, who's uh, also an excellent or expert on uh, the Middle East. So uh, welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, so uh, today we really want to discuss both uh, the the conflicts we have with Russia between Russia and Ukraine, but also the Palestine-Israel conflict. Uh, I guess what they both have in common is uh, they both have severely weakened the West standing in the world, and one can almost feel the shifts of uh, world order under Western leadership declining. Uh, so uh, you yourself recently came back from a trip hmm. to Mexico, and uh, I just yeah, I thought I would start off by asking your impressions there for the mood uh, how how bad are relations are they at the cold war level worse uh, do you see any path towards uh, at least learning to speak to each other again uh certainly i mean i i was actually it was last week and i was quite shocked because um i spoke with a person who was um i mean this is uh, who is very much responsible for the sphere, the relationship between Russia and the West. Uh, and what was clear from this um, <clears throat> is just how bad they are. They are much worse than during the Cold War era. I remember the Cold War era, I sometimes I remember the uh, d deputy defense minister telling me that there were almost no channels open left. There was just the one you know, military channel with the Pentagon, a, a video thing, but for resolving basically technical issues about military to prevent a sort of clash or or, 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 or some sort of problems um, between aircraft and things like that. But um, what he, how he described it uh, was that, you know, this sort of sense of enmity um, you know, was really striking. It wasn't that Russia was seen any longer as just, you know, a competitor, a rival, uh, a sort of unpleasant intrusion into the geopolitical order. He's saying that, you know, they, they, they see Russia as something really, you know, hostile. I mean, the enmity was very pronounced. I mean, and that, that Russia is a deep enemy and so there's almost no ch there's no there's no channels open i mean you know there has been one or two initiatives we probably know about them i should think from um it was from the democratic side um to try and talk i mean but they just i mean really sort of dismissed this quite laughing and said well you know i mean <laughs> but they can't commit to anything they said, well, maybe we can commit in 2030. I mean, great help. So uh, there is a sense of this deep enmity, and this is compounded by two things, really. The, the mainstream media, which um, projects a sort of really vituperation towards Russia and towards Russians and towards Russian culture. And so that is a, a factor. And really, they don't know what to do about this. I mean, they're pretty frank in saying, 
how do we address this? And some people have suggested to them that they can address this perhaps through engaging more with the alternative media uh, and through, you know, blogs and things like this. Um, and maybe, I mean, certainly there is a huge shift taking place in the media world. I mean, we're all aware of, of this financial as well as in, in just people's preferences. I'm not sure that it's really that easy for a state to engage because so many of these alternative medias are, are individualists and individual, I mean, in the way in which they approach it. So it's quite hard. And I'm not sure whether it would be helpful to these blogs, you know, to, to be sort of embraced by Zakharova. Um, um, so it is a problem about how to do it. And basically, I think what I was saying um, was, you know, actually, it's not worth banging your head against the wall at this period in the West, because that's what you're doing is just banging your head against a wall because there's such a divergence really about thinking i mean you know everything you stand for you know a man is a man a woman is a woman um the religion the family is the basis of society all of those things are completely opposite to to uh, what um, you know, the DEI, the sort of diversity, equity, inclusion uh, values stand for. I mean, it's like you were in sort of 1917 trying to negotiate with the Bolsheviks. There isn't very much to talk about. And so I said, I think this was it. What I think is very serious about this is that they feel the same about the Europeans, that the Europeans... Um, I mean, it's in a sense, the, the Europeans, they just don't feel there's any political leaders of any caliber. I mean, it's not just their attitudes and their political position, but there are just there are no <coughs> people of any caliber. And so, um, what worries them? And what I sort of talked about is that... Um, you know, we're in a very strange state at the moment. In the West, we have a sort of cultural revolution, half engaged. Half the population is zealously engaged in it, but half the population probably would say to them, no, everything's normal, there's nothing, you know, what's the problem? There's nothing a problem at all. Um, uh, and so... Uh, I, I gave the, the example of this... Um, <coughs> Perhaps you know of him, this um, uh, Russian general uh, who worked for the Tsar in 1919, and he came back to find St. Petersburg um, in the sort of strange betweenness, too. And he said, you know, the army was on the street acting illegally and robbing and threatening people. And at the same time, he went to this cinema theater. <coughs> And all the affluent class of St. Petersburg, everything was normal, everything was fine, they were enjoying it. And he said, there was no sort of sense that outside there was a revolution. <laughs> and they were all right, because it was normal inside. And then so he took a train and went off to see the Tsar. 
But when he got to the court, I mean, he, he was shocked to find that the Romanov women, many of whom he'd known, you know, uh, throughout his life, 80% of them were wearing the red ribbon uh, of support for precisely those forces who would later murder them. And <clears throat> so Russia has a sense that we're in a betweenness. But what is worrying is that at the end of this period, if there is an election, who knows if it will resolve anything or nothing, there may be even next year or beyond actually no one able to pick up the phone to their telephone call uh, who's able to commit to anything or to be able to, you know, because if it's so fragmented, the, the, the structures of power, and which they are already, you know, is there anyone who can actually commit to what is, you know, the, the things that are lacking, I mean, even the basic treaties on the use of weapons, on nuclear weapons, all these things have to be addressed. But will there be someone there that is in part to deal with that? We don't know. So this was, this was sort of part of the, the conversation. But beyond that, Russia is very sort of, uh, I think, confident. And it, it's been told and it knows that, you know, it's going to assume the presidency of the BRICS in the 1st of January. It, together with China, it can change the world in the next two years if they really set about it. <clears throat> and they have, do have plans on the monetary side and on sort of the trading side, which I think we'll see probably around about April taking some sort of shape. So they do have some, some ideas. There's still a deep discussion in Russia between, if you like, the Western economic side, you know who I'm talking about, and the sort of more, um, uh, and the more radical econ economist uh, in, in Russia. But that is going to be resolved, I think, mm. quite soon. So that's um, really what we saw. And the, the sense, of course, um, um, I just want to say something which is speculative on my part, but I think the sense that there's no one to talk to for, for Russia and that it has no challenge also probably explains why China is so busily trying to open up channels. <clears throat> it doesn't want to get in that, even if they have the same doubts about whether they're really worth it or whether anything will come from it. I think they are doing this partly probably on, you know, the accounts that come from Russia uh, about their situation and trying to avoid that uh, also. I think the other thing that is quite striking is that um, that um, you know Russia is moving on from that European period of St. Petersburg. I mean, as you know, it it sort of ended in the nineteenth century, more or less, when people were saying, "Well, why are you speaking French and not Russian?" I mean, it 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 has started to change, but now uh, it's really changing, and of course, there is tension for the. So for those in St. Petersburg and Moscow who are sort of lean much more towards European culture, that they feel their landmarks in life are sort of receding and they're a bit uncertain about the future. 
But I think, you know, the rise of um, um, the Orthodox Church has been a very important in grounding people, giving them a sense of belonging uh, and giving them a sort of direction for the future. And that is affecting Ukraine. That's the other thing that I would say that people perhaps don't pick up so readily. There's an aspect of um, Ukraine which has become, <coughs> in a certain sort, in a certain way, sort of eschatological to Ruski Mir. I mean, Russians are beginning to see, you know, they are finding their new self. They are evolving a new identity and a new being. And part of that is the absolute victory in Ukraine. It has to be part of this sense of coming, the three peoples coming um, uh, together uh, in, in, in this fashion. And so um, it's, it's, it's very clear that it is something that is sort of not just a sort of instrumental politics, instrumental talk. Um, Ukraine has become part of them finding and coming to their own, uh, their own being. And there is perhaps an optimism which may or may not be misplaced because they feel just as orthodoxy sort of self-started in Russia as soon as the churches were open again. Everyone just came back. It wasn't corralled or particularly organized. It just was a spontaneous thing. With what we've seen in Ukraine and how the Orthodox Church there has been persecuted, there's a sort of sense in Russia that there will be a sort of spontaneous self-starting of this current of um, orthodoxy and of different values uh, coming back um, uh, into it. I don't know. I'm a bit skeptical that that's, that will only happen when the ultranationalists are gone. It won't happen before that. And we haven't got to that point, but um, I think they are moving quite fast towards that. And it's, it was pretty clear to me, you know, they're not interested in negotiations about it. They're interested in um, uh, capitulation. Well, thank you very much for this extremely insightful uh, comments and observations. Um, now, from my distant perch in London, tracking official statements by Russian officials, I have to say this, I, I, I can see a lot of what you've been saying, not all of it, by any means, hmm. some of it. it. It's been striking to see how since the um, end of the summer, when it became increasingly clear that this Ukrainian offensive was going to fail, and fail badly, hmm that we've started to see one statement after another from Russian officials, which have been taking a stronger and stronger, or rather, shall we say, a clearer and clearer, clearer line about where they see the outcome of the war in Ukraine. And we had people like Volodin, who was the speaker of the Duma. He says that the choice for Kiev is very simple, either capitulate, <laughs> Or, or, you know, your state as it is today ends, mm. which was, I mean, could not be more stark than that. 
And it's important to say Volodin is a member of the Russian Security Council. He meets with Putin regularly. He's part of the inner councils of decisions. So he presumably is speaking with some authority. But now also we've had Putin himself and he's made several comments now about the triune of nations, the Russians, mm. the Belarusians, the Ukrainians, that they're all branches of the same tree, that they form together the original historic Russian people. He said this, I think, a couple, about a few weeks ago, back in November. Um, he's been coming back to it more recently. And I've noticed that other Russian officials are now picking up on this. So Sergei Narishin, Narishkin, the intelligence, mm, <coughs> he's been talking in the same way. We've also had uh, this ambassador, Ambassador Miroshnik, who appears to have some kind of formal position in the Russian government, though I understand that he's ultimately from Lugansk and he's actually by background Ukrainian. He was a member of Yanukovych's party mm. at one time. But he's talking a talking along these same lines as well. And I think we got more of this in Putin's Maris mm. press conference mm. yesterday. So all of this tallies exactly with what you are saying. And mm. at the same time, we have all of these people like Richard Haas mm. in the United States. Mm. These are the people that you are, some of the people that, you know, the Russian officials and people that you were talking with are yeah. aware of coming along with these ideas about freezing the conflict and uh, bringing things, you know, in the sort of, you know, stabilizing the front lines and finding some kind of a way to freeze the conflict, mm -hmm. all of that. And um, negotiating with each other, because that's what the Americans and the Europeans are doing. And I don't think they're noticing that this trend mm -hmm in Russia is moving in a completely different direction. Mm. <clears throat> so I'm not adding anything, in effect, to what you've just mm. said. I'm not asking any questions. I'm just saying that even mm. London, if you follow carefully, observe what the Russians, what the official Russian government has been saying over the last few weeks, you can, you can see this precise trend that you are speaking about. Mm. I think, uh, you know, in a, in a sense, it's quite hard to convey, but <clears throat> there's a, a sense that, you know, that the, the sort of culture, anti-Slav culture that has overtaken Ukraine and their sort of fraudulent claims to be sort of of Germanic extraction or Viking extraction is just a phase that will pass. It's going to go, and then the natural if you like, organic process that has happened in Russia and which they're confident in, will ultimately, you know, bring in the Ukraine, that they don't have to, therefore, they don't have to crush everyone. They probably have to crush um, the, the, those um, who are uh, deeply uh, Banderites. But, but beyond that, I don't think that the, that's not the sense. They just feel it's coming their way anyway. They just continue slowly, slowly doing what they're doing, and it's going to come to them. They don't have to do too much because it'll eventually come into them. That may be too optimistic, I can't say, but I think this is how they feel about it. And it's changed because it's not all about, you know, well, this line, this town has been won, that town has been won. 
it's now about you know just waiting for it to come to the right point where it will sort of come back. It's funny would use the word uh, yeah cultural revolution before because I remember in 2021 Putin gave this Valdai speech in Sochi and he was making the uh, argument that what they saw in the West reminded him of the Bolsheviks. <laughs> yes. Uh, the re revolutionary behavior, which would then be defined, you know, largely as, you know, up uprooting your own past and, you know, starting from scratch effectively. And uh, this is, again, something that Russia didn't want to follow because their point was that this has been their curse of their history, not just the Soviets, of course, uprooting their past. But before that, you had Peter the Great with the Cultural Revolution. Before that, you had you know the breakup of Kiev and Rus, and you know all, they, they started over too many times. And I think uh, uh, what what they really see is required for them would be to reconnect its very fragmented uh, periods in history. And as I think you point out quite well, as also is what the the common uh, the common the uh, uh, denominator common path through the past thousand year, of course, has always been the Orthodox Church. So this is really. Uh, an important group mm. that sticks mm. it all together. But uh, but again, it's not that different from other countries who lived under communism, had their culture, their nation, and their faith purged. They also want to rebuild, so from Poland to Hungary, for example. But uh, uh, but but uh, the point I want to go to was, it seems that uh, in, in the past, uh, Russia was mostly disillusioned with the West because it was excluded from Europe after the Cold War. Mm. But it seems that the problem is getting worse because at least during the Cold War, while there was conflict between governments, the people still often admired the West. They, mm. But mm. now there seems to be uh, almost detest. Uh, they, 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 there's nothing. Uh, the, the, yeah, for, well, the former advisor to Putin, uh, Karagno, he pointed out that we have nothing more to get from the West. We we got what we wanted. We, they they've chosen the wrong path effectively. And uh, the reason I bring it up because uh, you mentioned uh, the U Ukrainians might naturally gravitate back to the. Russians, mm. or that was expectations. Mm. Also. And I saw a recent uh, video by Arstovich, the former mm. advisor of Zelensky. <laughs> he was making the point that, um, did we pick the wrong side? Because uh, they have like the, the Western globalists versus the, the Russians. So it's, uh, I think it's going to be hard to overcome this huge conflict with all the death and misery. But uh, of course, it, uh, one, one, one shouldn't simply write off Ukraine as being you know, perpetual anti-Russian, I think, after this. Oh, no, no, I don't think so. And I do think, I, I mean, I would go further and say, you know, a lot of people in Russia, which is why there is some tension, despise what they call the liberals, but which they really mean the sort of the new moral order that Europe is attempting to, to assert. And, and they do see it in terms of their own history. And, um, you know, and they see... Uh, you know, the the constraints on people that come to Russia and that they can't speak freely is very similar to the constraints by the nomenclatura that were imposed uh, during the Soviet period. I mean, these parallels are, are obvious to, 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 to you, Alexander, and others, but are not really seen, I think, wider, more widely in the West, that this is how they're looking at us not with any great aspiration or anything and saying well you know it's just not worth spending much energy on the west at the moment and there's no great desire for it because they can see it's you know it, i mean they can almost feel it i mean you know 
We stand for exactly the things the West wants to disembed. We stand for, you know, gender issues which they want to dissolve in the West. We stand for the family with the West is trying to disembed and from, from collectiveness, from belonging, if you like, from nationalism, patriotism. I mean, it is, you know, uh, for them, uh, a real cultural revolution that is underway in, in the West, even though it's this strange one where, <clears throat> you know, half the population would say, no cultural revolution. Is there a cultural revolution taking place in the West? No, it's all normal. Everything is fine. And that brings me back to that sort of example of St. Petersburg for them. They understood that that allegory quite well of, of the Russian general who came to St. Petersburg. And, you know, the normal was going on in one hand and then there was revolution in the other hand. I mean, it's interesting you, you said strange because, um, I mean, I should say that um, I live in the epicenter of the revolution. My wife is an academic, so she's very yes. well aware of the kind of revolution that we're talking about. Mm. But of course, the previous revolutions, the ones the Russians went through, Peter the Great's and mm. the Bolshevik ones, I mean, they had a kind of epic quality, a kind mm. of grandeur. Mm. I mean, they, 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 you know, moved millions of people. They mm. were tremendously attractive around the world. Mm. This cultural revolution that we're going through in the West, which I agree, Westerners have made the Russians in a kind of odd way a part of, even within within the West's own mm. understanding, is a very strange cultural revolution indeed. I mean, it's it, it's it's certainly not one that I think is going to have anything like the kind of resonance that those Russian revolutions of the past ones. Yeah. Can I ask, it's a question actually I'm addressing to both of you gentlemen, to both Alistair and Glenn, because you've both been to Russia recently. Glenn was at Valdai, you've just been to Russia uh, literally just a short few days ago. Um, I'm getting a sense from, you know, again, this is all from London, of a kind of sense of buoyancy amongst the Russians. I mean, for a very, very long time, even before the Soviet Union collapsed, there was, you know, growing cynicism among, you, you sense the cynicism about the Russians, the sense that everything they try to do doesn't turn out well, that, you know, this is always going to be a second-rate country in some way, that um, a, a lack of self-confidence. <laughs> and I, I, I'm sort of beginning to feel that this is changing, that... that well, not beginning to, but it is changing quite sharply. I mean, was that the sense that both of you got when you were there, or am I getting this wrong? It's a question thrown to both of you. Who starts? I'll start. Yeah. Uh, I, I would say it's not just buoyancy, it's sort of positive energy. I mean, there, it's, it's brimming over with energy. Everything is on the move, everything is in transition. I mean, it's really a very stimulating place to be because, I mean, there is this sort of sense of direction, resolve, and opportunity. I mean, they can see. <clears throat> you don't have to say it twice. You know, the next two or three years, they, together with China, uh, are not about to be changed by the world, but are going to be the ones um, who are acting to change the world. The BRICs are, are clearly going to play an important part, and already they're seeing it in bigger terms. I mean, 
they see the BRICS not in a formal way because the instruments of legality are not there, but they see the BRICS almost as a sort of shadow security council, UN Security Council. It's addressing the same issues because the Security Council is locked up and doesn't work very well. So, I mean, you know, they're seeing, I mean, lots of sort of positive ways ahead uh, geopolitically. I would, yeah, I would maybe see it even in a, I think there's also uh, immense confidence, but uh, over past few years, but I think uh, one can even see it in the wider historical context, because since kind of industrial revolution, whenever countries modernized or in before, uh, you know, there was always a dilemma between preserving the traditional or modernizing. Well, that was in the West. Outside the West, it was often modernization was referred to often as uh, westernizing. This is the case with from China to Japan. Well, for, for Russia, I think the modernization process, as was under Peter the Great, it manifested itself as uh, uh, Europeanization. So uh, in order to modernize that, to make the country more European. And this is something that also always created the sense that they were just walking in the footsteps of the West. This was a key theme for Dostoevsky as well. Mm -hmm. like, you know, we can never be great, so we always just aspire to, you know, try to find the footpath of the West and follow down that mm -hmm. track. So I think that now, for the first time, since so much power has shifted to the East, they feel that, uh, you know, being able to embrace their traditional uh, values as and modernizing at the same time, that you don't have this you know, tradition and modernity isn't either anymore East versus West uh, question. So I, I very much agree with Alistair for that uh, on this, because now now they're seeing, you know, the Europeans, uh, look at where the new technological revolutions is taking. We're becoming, you know, it's all becoming digital, this huge uh, digital platforms, which is now transforming the world. Uh, you know, and Europeans, we don't have any. All our major platforms are Americans. When you go to Russia, all the major digital platforms, they're all Russian. Uh, and, uh, you know, they, mm. they have, of course, this new transportation corridors they're building. And uh, as I also pointed out, BRICS and the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, they're quite important because they, you know, they were kind of told in all of Europe, uh, Russia is the only country that's not pretty much allowed to join this new Europe. And now they're forming this uh, new institution mm. countries in the East. So there's a whole new world opening mm. up, which... Uh, not not pro-West or anti-West, but simply the West doesn't have to matter as much as it did in the past. Uh, it has other places to go and, you know, it can find this place, its seat at the table. So I think the confidence is, uh, you, can, you can see it on the streets. It's, uh, you can see it in the face of people. I think just the last thing I need to say, because I don't want to give the wrong impression, and then that's it, is basically, of course Russia is open to talks. I mean, there's no question of that. I mean, if there was a, a someone uh, who could really uh, talk with them, but really that talk has to be with someone who is empowered, because really the thing that has to be settled, whether it's Ukraine or anything else, is a modus vivendi between, in the Makinda language, between the Rimland and the Heartland. Where are the limits of one's interests, the Rimland, the NATO interest on the one hand, and where are the interests of Russia, China, and uh, the road and belt economic depth? How is that going to come to some sort of means of um, you know, peaceful um, alignment?
but that's a long way off, long way off. But I mean, you know, everyone understands that's the ultimate destination. Mm. We had an interview about some weeks ago with a member of the IFD, Maximilian Carr. Mm. And it was in Kra, and it was interesting because, of course, he he did understand many of these points. He was talking about the atrophy of Germany's industrial economy, mm. the fact that it has been running down actually for a very very long time. <coughs> which, as somebody who visits Germany regularly, I have been able to mm. do this for myself, by the way. And he also spoke about the need to re-establish relations with Russia and the importance mm. of those. But at the same time, and it was very striking and really rather painful, is he spoke about the total marginalization of these views that he mm. had on these yeah. issues. Not just, I mean, because he's got other issues as well, other views and other things, you know, about the mm. essence of Germanness, which perhaps one can understand that they might be more difficult for some people in Germany. But these, even these specific issues about, you know, mm. changing the industrial structure. Uh, uh, sorting out problems with Russia. They're completely marginal. You won't find them in the media. You won't find them in academia. It, 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 it's purely something that has traction. Well, the base of the party's support, from what he was saying, is what the Americans would call the blue-collar working class. <laughs> there, people are responding to these ideas and are open to them. But that there is this barrier that they haven't yet been able to cross in Germany um, in, in order to sort of break through. And if they don't mm. do that in Germany, if German, that doesn't happen in Germany, where realistically else is it going to happen? I can't see it happening in Britain at this time, to be realistic. Uh, the United States it seems to me very far from that point indeed. And other countries, other European countries, I don't think have the political weight at the present time, even if they had the inclination, which I don't see either. I, 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 uh, <coughs> I accept what you say is, uh, I'm sure, absolutely right. I mean, uh, I think, first of all, catharsis in the United States may um, provoke some form of catharsis. I think we're heading for a crisis in Europe because um, we have these two moments clashing together where we have uh, a crashing standard of living and then we have um, a huge number of immigrants coming into uh, Italy and to Germany uh, uh, <clears throat> in huge numbers as people are losing their jobs and their standards of living are collapsing and I think this is going to sort of be a storm that is brewing uh, politically as well as uh, socially in 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 the countries and uh, I mean we can see it in you know in places like Sweden where they've sort of almost lost control of the um, of the system that you know the there are gangs and um, law and order is breaking down I, I may I don't mean today tomorrow I'm just talking about I think this is something so I think in a way some sort of cathartic um, effect is going to come, and that may change, may change Europe, and probably will begin in America first, and then affect us later. Well, uh, on, on 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 that note, I feel uh, 
what's uh, perhaps uh, yeah dragging down the West a bit at the moment. Uh, it's a nice way to segue into these uh, issues now of uh, Palestine and um, mm. and and Israel because um, it I think again when we began with this conflict. Uh, uh, the Israelis, no, sorry, yeah, the Israelis, you know, talked in the West, saying, you know, uh, can we get your unconditional support in fighting Hamas? But it seems to have developed a lot since. Uh, it's hardly fighting Hamas uh, doesn't really sum up what they're doing in Gaza, and also now we have the West Bank. But uh, possibly very soon, this will we might have a war spreading into Lebanon as well. Uh, but uh, I was just wondering if you could first. Uh, uh, speak a bit about how we can understand the role of Hamas in the region, because obviously uh, they're not really, yeah, they don't get along with the Palestinian authorities or, and uh, obviously this was part of Israel's objective as well to keep this, uh, uh, to keep the Palestinians divided. But how, but, you, but you've written about this in terms of Hamas being, you know, either about ideological Islam or it being more of a resistant movement. Um, I think um, <clears throat> the first thing I think to understand the situation is really to to see that we are leaving behind traditional politics of institutional dynamics of politics and what Hamas is about, and I that's why I was very interested when Alexander talked about uh, Algiers. Um, because all of this is revolutionary politics. It's not, can't be interpreted in the sort of standard work, you know, how much power, how much this. Revolutionary politics is about exploding the situation, um, even at the expense of, of large amounts of blood being shed. In order, you have to burn it down to build it again. I remember actually in 2006, I was at a Hamas meeting, and um, they um, won the election for the PA. And of course, Condoleezza Rice and Bush and Blair said, no way, <laughs> forget it. And the young Hamas members were <clears throat> quite right. They sort of pointed their fingers at the Hamas leaders and said, did you really ever believe that the West would allow you to take part, to administer your own land? You were so naive. The only way ahead is to burn everything in order to build it again. And uh, that's what I mean by sort of revolutionary politics. Uh, uh, it is about, and so what Hamas did on the 7th of October was simply um, an exercise um, to break the paradigm, to explode the whole paradigm. You know, Palestine is not being discussed anywhere. The two-state or any state is not being addressed. Their situation just gets worse and worse in places like Gaza. So the aim was to just a sort of set off a bomb. Now, I think what people don't probably understand so well about Hamas is this was carefully thought about. I mean, it didn't, wasn't just um, a spontaneous event. It was something that had been, um, had been deeply thought and the actual actions on the day. I mean, have, let's not get into the weeds on what happened on the 7th of October because it's very complicated. Uh, but I mean, it was a, a very precise military strategy. 
that Hamas, at least, was involved with in that. Now, it, it, and it has an objective. And it is part of a wider strategy that um, involves others. It involves a, a sort of uh, other fronts that are operating in consensus, in coordination with Hamas um, in parts of the world. I mean, we've seen some of them in Iraq and, and Yemen um, taking part in Lebanon, Hezbollah is part of this. And I think it's fairly obvious um, that this both imposes constraints, but also imposes <coughs> a structure. And, and the structure is basically this, um, which is that no one wants, you know, an American all-out war. I mean, not another, you know, 9-11, thank you, where everything is destroyed and, there's, you know, the Middle East is left a desert. So they don't want to go dive into big war. So it is constructed as a sort of escalatory ladder, very careful steps, one rung to another rung, and to move, and this is a strategy that I've been seeing in the region for some time, don't fight on your ground, uh, your home ground, fight on your enemy's ground. And if your enemy expects you to do X, then you do Y. I mean, it's very much the Chinese model of, if you like, thinking about about conflict. And if it starts off, you know, at one moment it's Hezbollah, then it moves to Yemen. Then Iraq explodes. So it puts your enemy off balance. It doesn't know what's going to come next or when that part of it is going to, to, to take off. And you can see this if you want to say, well, how do you know? How can you see this? Well, I mean, first of all, I wrote an article on 7th, just after 7th of October, and I said the great surprise about 7th of October is that people think it's a surprise, because I've been waiting for about three months. I could see all of this sort of coming into sort of play. Now, um, uh, in that Hamas wants to, um, this is about Palestinian liberation. Uh, and so as long as they're doing what they're doing, then they um, don't want Hezbollah involved in it, not because they distrust Hezbollah or have problems with Hezbollah, but because Hezbollah are, are Shi and Lebanese and not Palestinian, even though they've supported Palestine and are at one with them on this, this exercise. So it's not necessarily. And you could see this happening very visibly. If you looked at that main talk speech that Hassan Nasrallah, the Secretary General of Hezbollah, <coughs> for the first time I've ever seen it, um, you know, he put on his glasses and started reading passages of it because it wasn't a Hezbollah document, it wasn't a Hezbollah position. This was a consensus with other states and other people had been, um, uh, obviously, and so he put it on because he had to get the wording exactly right <laughs> because everyone was involved in the drafting of it.
quite widely. So um, we're, we're facing something is quite different. What is uh, Hamas's aim? Um, you know, uh, again, I don't think people are really understanding what's happening there. I know Gaza quite well. Um, the you know the Israelis mainly came in first of all when you come through areas checkpoint then you get a sort of area of uh, cultivated ground um, uh, before you get to Gaza City and you get the coastline and the beaches going into that with a tank is easy I mean you just walk, walk in basically there's no defense that they they can mount against it and then Israel started moving down the coastal areas in their tanks and their forces. Because these are the, I mean, the subsoil is not suitable for deep tunnels there because it's too close to the sea and the moisture. Then after Gaza, you get the wadi, which is a swarm plant, which separates Gaza City from Khan Yunus and, and the other parts. And that's not suitable for tunnels, really. I mean, unless they're very deep ones. And Hamas has dug these, I mean, incredible facilities over the years, prepared them. I mean, they are not the ones you see on the television. These tunnels are 60 plus meters down. They contain their own hospital. It contains um, uh, munitions. It contains stores. It contains equipment for excavation, for excavating what I call throwaway tunnels, which are the ones where they just small squads come up very quickly attack a tank, come down it, and then they collapse the tunnel. So it's just one time use, finished, gone. Um, any Israelis try and follow them will just be collapsed. It will collapse on them. But the big tunnels are really deep. And so they, um, so they can move. I mean, they're big enough for cars to go up, some of them, uh, I mean, underground. And certainly motorbikes are the main form of communication. So they're a facility that people don't realize. So when you see all these images of Israeli forces going in on the surface, I mean, what are they doing? Nothing. I mean, very, I mean, you know, okay, they bomb it. Occasionally they get into a firefight. Hamas comes out, attacks them. And they are not winning. They're not destroying the, the sort of probably, like no one knows the exact figures for these things, but... I think largely the, the forces of Hamas are, are intact underground, not committed yet, because they're waiting for the long term. The point is, and this is what is missed, I think, Hamas can probably last longer than Israel can with the pressure coming from Biden. Let's stop this, stop this soon. You know, it's hurting me for the election. And um, at that point, because they're not destroying Hamas. I mean, and you can see this. I mean, when the Israelis sort of, you know, gather together a lot of Palestinian civilians and put them in their underpants and say these are Hamas members, everyone knows it's fake. So why do they do that? It's because they can't actually produce the real thing to their own people. And the Israeli po population will soon say, well, you know, but you haven't done what you committed to. You haven't destroyed Hamas. You haven't um, finished off the tunnels. You haven't done all these things. So that's when um, I think you'll find at some point, I don't know when it'll come, Hamas will simply say, okay, it's all for all. That's our offer. All your 
prisoners, all your hostages for us. Um, yes, it's 6,000 to whatever it is, 235. That's the deal um, if you want it. Otherwise, you know, you, you have nothing. I mean, it just continues. You've got rubble. You've got a main problem. How are you going to deal with a completely destructed Gaza? What are you going to do about it? Because we're still going to be there. And we can outlast you. Now, would it work? Well, we have to wait and see. But um, I think already you can see the signs that Israel is sort of shifting and saying, well, now Lebanon, let, let, let's, you know, let's move the discussion to this is the real problem, we've got to do it. And Golant has, uh, Golant has, said, from, Golant has said from the beginning, we need to take this opportunity to destroy uh, Lebanon. At this point, then the wall widens and other fronts open up. And then the, a lot of pressure comes both on Israel and the United States. And um, that's, really the, that's really the gist, I think, of what people haven't really understood. It's not a stupid, I mean, it's very far from a stupid operational plan. Um, they have a plan um, against all odds, against this huge, um, you know, um, Goliath of a military structure, but, you know, in some ways uh, the plan is based on the sense that Israel will not be able to resist um, actually going too far and trying to take more and trying to take the West Bank, uh, trying to create a Nakba, because this is what the cabinet, uh, I think uh, when I last spoke on your program, I said, you know, this cabinet is much more radical than people realize. It's not the old, you know, politics of Israel before. I think I think if anybody goes back and looks at those programs, they will see that a lot of the events that we're seeing playing out were discussed there. Mm -hmm. uh, and you can see how events have essentially followed along the course that has been outlined. That's what comes when you have the knowledge of the area. Uh, mm. If I may say, and you know the knowledge, mm. the, the the knowledge, the actual knowledge of what Gaza is like, I should say that I had a, uh, it, it was on, it was on, it was a sort of podcast, but there was an American officer, uh, Daniel Davis, Lieutenant. Oh yes, I know. And he he basically was saying he didn't have the same degree of knowledge of Gaza itself. I don't think he's ever been there, but even before the Israeli ground <laughs> operation began. He said this is going to be a mistake, that yes. the Israelis are going to try and do something that it is beyond their power to do. And um, the point about Hamas having planned it through, having thought it out carefully, very carefully in advance, having prepared what they were doing very carefully, <coughs> really need to start to understand this, that this is an organization that both has agency, it's not taking orders from someone, be it in Tehran or indeed even in Doha or someplace like that, they have agency and they are very intelligent people. Now, just to say something else, Alice, it's a question I want to just, it was a question, I wanted to, to discuss, because to me, and I think we both have some of some, well, I'm probably you much more than me, some memory of the end of empire type scenarios that happened. Algiers was one, but, you know, we mm. also remember the sort of battles mm. that took place 
perhaps you remember eight and I don't, but you know, mm. things like that. Um, this has something of the look about it of what national <laughs> resistance movements do. And um, th this is something perhaps you can discuss a little bit more, um, again, knowledgeably than I can, because like many, many people, most people, I've mm. tended to think of Hamas as essentially a, a sectarian religious organization. <laughs> and I think that the more time passes, the more it is starting to look as something rather different and perhaps more in line with you know right. national resistance organizations like you know the fln in algeria which we're talking about <coughs> resisted in yemen the people the anc even if you like to some extent and of course uh, uh, you know the people in vietnam the Viet Minh, people of that kind perhaps you can talk a little bit of this because i think yes. you have some, some knowledge of them which of course we yes. Yes, I well, I was writing about you know the uh, uh, just recently about my meeting with uh, Sheikh Yassin, who founded Hamas, who's a paraplegic, who was in a wheelchair, but a really an extraordinary man, tough as nails. I mean, but good sense of humor, twinkling eyes, strange, very strange character. Um, and he said to me something that was, as I say, uh, really startling, but um, you have to understand the context to see why. And he said, you know, Hamas is a liberation movement. A liberation movement. He didn't say it's an Islamic movement. And in fact, he said the opposite. He said, look, you can join it. Um, Christians can join it. Anyone who wants liberation from occupation is welcome to this movement. Uh, this was in the context that Hamas and um, the whole of Egypt were basically Muslim Brotherhood, which was very different. The Muslim Brotherhood is was much more about social justice, social movements, about community work, uh, and it had a dogma and ideology. And he was throwing out ideology completely and saying, anyone, you know, we're not you know, we're not Muslim Brotherhood, we're not this, we are a liberation movement. And this really ended up in a in the split in Hamas between, this is why, you know, it, it, I, it's quite amusing. I mean, I used to go and see the political leadership when I was in um, Lebanon. I go and visit Meshal and the Hamas leaders regularly in the leadership. They're not Gaza. Gaza is different. It is something quite different. And what is so striking about it is they've married, um, they've married if this idea of liberation. I mean, big. I mean, this affects the whole global south. This is the movement we're in as the world, you know, people wanting independence and sovereignty back. And they married that to this being, if you remember, a couple of years ago, it started off with this. All about Al-Aqsa, the fight for Al-Aqsa, saving Al-Aqsa from this. Well, there really is a struggle for Al-Aqsa from the other side, from the Israeli side, which means gives it a real sense of substance. But the point about that is this turns it into a sort of civilizational Islam. You know, Al-Aqsa 
is not Shi, it's not Sunni, it's not Muslim Brotherhood, it's not Salafist, it's not Wahhabist. It is stands for the civilization of Islam over the centuries um, and appeals to every Muslim everywhere, particularly now since Mecca and Medina have become so commercialized and trivialized. Um, and so this has been a very powerful, and I think what you've seen in some of the videos, perhaps you watched it when the hostages were released, was not only this huge energy of, you know, um, support for what was happening, the freeing of the hostages, they were coming, but there was an undertone to, of Islam. People got down, they kissed the ground, they kissed the, uh, uh, and talked in Islamic terms, but not in ideological Islamist terms. And this is the first time for a long time because, in a sense, Islamist movements were invented by the West or facilitated by the West to destroy nationalism. Nationalism, the sort of secular nationalism that was in Egypt, that was in Syria, that was in Iraq. Uh, and you know the uh, the uh, the old neocons sat down and they did this um, you know the the clear document in, from um, some time ago um, and this was the point that Islamists were supposed to be used to contain uh, nationalism and that the West had to side with the monarchs and the emirs and even the Islamists in order to win this battle and here you see it coming together, nationalism and a form of bottom-up popular Islam, not in an ideological way. I think that's a very potent force. If it really takes off, it's going to be very frightening for some states in the Middle East, very frightening indeed. Uh, but. How are they going to deal with it now? I mean, the you know, Wahhabism and ISIS and all these things were used against Syria and others. I mean, I've been following this since Afghan days. You know, most of these Islamist movements. Um, what are they going to do? I mean, they've gone down the road of sort of secular com uh, consumer Westernism. Um, many of them. It's. Um, it's hard because in that process they 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 left the sort of the idea of uh, Islam as a civilization um, in order for um, to pursue a sort of Western Westification project. Really, I think you would have to call it. So it's it's a it's a big shift that is taking place, and the anger in the rest of the world is extraordinary. The anger in the Islamic sphere is huge. So all of this is sort of brewing. And Colonel Davis said, you know, Israel is making a big mistake going into Gaza. Well, it sounds as if they're about to make another big mistake in Lebanon, because that will be even more of a mistake than, than where they are. And then it looks as if they're making another big mistake in the West Bank, because as you've probably seen, the fighting in the West Bank is reaching huge proportions. And now even the Israelis are saying they're worried that the, that the Palestinian Authority might start turning its guns on um, 
onto the um, onto the Israeli forces. They're not regular forces in West Bank, by the way. They are just so because this is slightly important. They are reservist and predominantly settlers themselves. So they're sympathetic. And Ben Gavir and the other ministers have been fudging the sort of boundaries by giving them weapons, self-defense little groups in the settlers, and putting them in army uniforms. So if you drive around in the West Bank, you don't know, is this an army person or is it just a settler, you know, who's going to impose its own will. So the, the line between the two is blurred, which means that I think it is possible that there will be an explosion. And then there's Al-Aqsa, which we haven't talked about, which, of course, they I mean, this group within the cabinet, and is the policy of the government, um, they want to build um, the third temple. They've imported the red heifers, and they're going through this process. And it was, by the way, on the Friday before the 7th of October that there was a, a large group of settlers who stormed onto the Temple Mount, Haram al-Sharif, um, uh, attacked. They know that they are planning to, um, if you like, take Al-Aqsa. That is why it's called saving Al-Aqsa. Al-Aqsa, Al-Aqsa, Al-Aqsa is the key. So <clears throat> the radicals, I talked about revolutionary politics with Hamas and the world, but also some of the cabinet or revolutionaries, too, planning to blow up the whole process. They've said for years, now, there needs to be a real crisis, even a war, and then we can do the next clearing out. And then, and Netanyahu, by the way, said this, 1970, with a book uh, written by Max Hastings in the 70s, and he said, in the next war, if we do it right, we'll get rid of all the Arabs from greater Israel, and we will sort out Jerusalem too. So we have two revolutionary. And so this is why, you know, you can't say, oh, let's have a political process or something like this, because we're talking about quite different form of politics. Mm -hmm. One which does mean the expenditure of blood, unfortunately. Well, the trouble with all of this is that for the United States and for the West, a collision of two revolutionary forces in the Middle East is uh, uh, is potentially a geopolitical disaster. I mean, I've been reading there was an there was an article. Um, I don't know whether you saw it by Gideon Rackman, <laughs> journalist that I have to read from time to time in the Financial Times. But yes, but he was he was in contact with people in the American government. They were wringing their hands. We say we got a fifth of the fleet, the U.S. fleet now tied up in the Middle East, We're, we we have all these other things that are concerning us all over the world. We're worried about what the Chinese might be doing in the Pacific. We've got to think about the Russians. We've got to think about all of this. And yet we're down, tied down where we don't really want to be in the Middle East. And we don't want an escalation. We don't want to see this war expand. And yet our ally, the key country that we have given effectively a green light to, to do whatever it considers appropriate in the Middle East, is now acting in a way that is increasingly out of control. It's resisting our wishes that it 
slow things down in Gaza. On the contrary, it seems to be escalating there. And now it's talking about going after Hezbollah. <laughs> it's escalating in the West Bank. And Precisely. And they're talking about the temple. <laughs> and uh, uh, they're going to look upon this with horror. And uh, we can also see, coming back to your point about, well, not just Islamic opinion, world opinion is now hardening. Uh, we had a vote in the General Assembly, 121 states on the 26th of October, called for for a humanitarian pause leading to an eventual cessation of hostilities. And yeah. now we've had another resolution with 153 states, more, in other words, 30 more, uh, coming along and saying we want a humanitarian ceasefire. And these are, this is very measured language in these resolutions which do not reflect the strength <laughs> of feeling that even many governments are now starting to uh, to show. So uh, the, the Americans are going to be horrified by all of this. I, uh, I, <laughs> you're absolutely right. Um, and I'm interested that they're sort of finally waking up to what they're dealing with. Um, uh, but also, uh, 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 you know, it's too late. The genie is out of the bottle. I mean, you know, in Israel and in the region. And, you know, okay, they've stuck all these aircraft carriers. I think I irritated someone very much. You remember what happened in sort of Lebanon in 1983 and what was it, the um, USS, um, I can't remember the name of the ship, which was sort of stuck there. And I said, well, you know, seeing the, your aircraft carrier sitting off the Mediterranean, I mean, it just looks to me so 1950s. I mean, it, you know, I mean, is that really effective piece of equipment for this sort of war now? I mean, it just, I don't think that Lebanon or Iran are the slightest bit deterred by these great big museum pieces that they're rolling out into the, into the Mediterranean. And I don't think the, um, the Americans are, are really sort of understanding, you know, they they face bigger dilemmas. I mean, in Syria and Iraq. I mean, in Iraq there are I think twelve bases, American bases, in Syria about nine. And every day they are being attacked. Every single day. And when they strike back at some of the so-called militia, then they are attacked again. I mean, you know, it didn't deter. It goes on. And really now they are facing the the question. Do they go all in or do they get all out? And this is, I don't know what they will do. I mean, I presume probably the, uh, the dynamic will be to stay because it's always hard to, you know, um, politically in America to sort of remove troops from an area. Um, but they're sitting targets. And uh, um, the Rashad <coughs> Shaibi, the Iraqi resistance, are very tough people. They are not, by the way. I know every time I read a Western press, it says, oh, you know, these people are, are sort of linked to Iran, they're I Iran proxies. Um, it's true that some of, the, um, some of these movements are very much linked to Iran and are basically Shi. 
But the majority that we're seeing taking action now um, are actually either mixed groups, Sunni and Shi. But the point is that these are Iraqi nationalists. They're not Iranian nationalists. They're Iraqi nationalist um, um, groups. And I've met some of them. And uh, I can tell you they're not, you know, they're not particularly Iranian, but they are certainly very um, uh, concerned to end the occupation of Iraq. And it's slowly increasing, and they are waiting for the next phase. I mean, they even, you know, rather like Hamas, they have their tunnels inside the green zone, um, the, 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 the hitters. So expect that at some point it will probably get, come around um, in the embassy in, in, in the green zone. Um, so, uh, you know, I think, um, I think that w w what we're seeing is a sort of really quite big movement around the world. Some people say, well, it hasn't done much so far. Um, I suppose you can look at it. But as I say, it's slowly, slowly, you know, one step, one step. Don't let the Americans sort of father all their tomahawks at Syria. And in that respect, you know, certain states are kept, you know, the aim is to keep the nation states in, if you like, the background and to have the sort of informal militias and others in the forefront of it. So um, it, it's not going to be, uh, uh, if you like, a big element. But also, even so, I mean, you know, what's happening in, in Yemen is having a huge impact uh, on, on many things uh, in the West. So um, I don't know what the next stages are. No one, I mean, I don't um, get told these things quite rightly. I think you're. I think you're correct that the American impulse will be to to stay and uh, double down as opposed to with, withdrawing. Uh, but I'm I'm just trying to figure out how what the framework would be to try to make some predictions about what would happen next because well obviously the attacks on U.S. bases in Syria and uh, Iraq will will continue. That that's a way to extend the conflict and all, of course we see now Yemen becoming very active uh, but, but I was curious because you you mentioned this more almost the yeah, revolutionary movements uh, among the people uh, in in the region and uh, and I often get the impression from Turkey to Egypt that most of the resentment is coming more from the people while the political governments they well they, they kind of reflect this sentiment in the rhetoric but they wouldn't uh, just no. get into action I'm just wondering when does the is it possible that the pressure from the public becomes so great they will intervene? Or uh, I'm just curious, well, what are the possible areas of escalation? I, I guess yeah, it's a question for both of you. Well, I think you know in the, you're right in the sense that I don't expect there will be a big change from the Gulf states. They are deeply sort of <clears throat> frightened in in many ways by uh, what it is the the sort of revolutionary. I mean this. Revolutionary ethos is something that they they've always feared, particularly when it comes from Iran, because the Shi are sort of it's in their DNA, the revol revolutionary back from the time of the Prophet. Um, so they're not. I mean, they are very hesitant about that. Um, 
I think that in some places we may see changes, like in Jordan, in Iman, we'll see uh, changes. We've seen the big protests there, and all of the, you know, calling in front of the American embassy, you know, who's our leader? Hamas. Who's our army? Qassam. I mean, all of the, the so the, I mean, it, it is sort of fundamentally, but I think what we're waiting for is the next, you know, rung up the ladder to take place. And I think it's very likely to be in Lebanon, um, of all, because uh, <clears throat> Galant has given this undertaking, you know, in that you to they have a uh, 150,000 Israelis sitting in hotels on the Galilee and um, on the Black Sea, um, Dead Sea, um, or waiting to go back to the towns in the north. I mean, Hezbollah has effectively done a complete, has got created a demilitarized zone in the north of Israel. I mean, it's empty apart from a few troops and one or two individuals who've stayed behind. Um, <coughs> They want them back. I mean, th this is another aspect of deterrence that's so important to understand. Israeli deterrence had uh, two sides to it. One side was the big deterrence, if you like, against sort of, you know, Iraq and Syria and the big states. The other thing was that, you know, Israelis had a sort of, if you like, a, a moral contract with the Israeli state that... Um, wherever it lived on the land of Israel, the IDF had its back and the Israeli public, uh, government had its back. And that deterrence has collapsed. And, you know, people are not going to go and live next to the Gaza fence now, whatever the government says, and certainly not up there in the north where Hamas is. So that's why they've sent off these... Um, uh, these envoys to Lebanon to say, <clears throat> you know, we'll give you a lot of money if you can persuade Hezbollah to move to the other side of the Litani River, which is about 40, 50 miles north of the border, and to stay there and be disarmed. Um, this came about. It's, it's very complicated, so I won't go into it be because it came up a resolution at the end of the 2006 war, which was never really accepted by either the UN or the Lebanese authorities, and certainly not by Hezbollah. But it is um, a UN Security Council resolution. So Israel are trying to build that into a sort of justification for military action against Hezbollah, and trying to you know, amass Western European support for it. Um, <clears throat> so I think that's probably going to be the next the next stage. I don't know when it will be, but as I say, they've set themselves their own sort of timeline for it, because they said, by the end of next month, we're going to start moving all these people who are costing the state, the Israeli state, quite a lot of money in their hotels. They want them back in the, into, their, um, into their towns. And they've said very clearly, you know, the head of Matula and all of these town zones said, no, not going back, absolutely not. You've got to get rid of Hezbollah before we're going to move back. We refuse. So this is the dilemma that, um, and also is the diversion, because very soon too, 
there will be the Israeli public saying, but you haven't achieved your objectives in Gaza, have you? And that's so, uh, a war in Lebanon is quite attractive uh, in this way. And it's also really, finally, I just want to say about survival. It's about the survival of Netanyahu and his cabinet. And personal survival, he has to get his base back. And the base have turned very, very um, eschatological and apocalyptic. Mm -hmm. And they want the Arabs out. They don't want to live near them. They want them out. And he is molding this to um, a base that by uh, 26, when the next election is, he can use this to stay in power, because once he leaves power, then he can be prosecuted and he'll end up in jail. So it's really existential for Netanyahu to have a long war. The longer, the better. And the more it sort of brings his base with him by promising a new Nakbar of the region, that's his future. That's where he wants to go. And I don't think the Americans can stop him. Can I just say, we, we had an interview, um, actually just yesterday, we, we, uh, Glenn and I spoke with Syed Mohammed Marandi. Marandi, yeah. Syed Marandi. Yes, and he, he confirmed two of the points that you made, because we asked him, we said to him, look, you've got two American aircraft carriers <laughs> in the East, one of them is in the Persian Gulf, there's a submarine with hundreds of Tomahawk missiles, does this worry people in Iran <laughs> and he, he said, smiled no. <laughs> and he yeah. smiled and he said no and by the way he said I think I'm right in saying he said almost exactly the same thing that you said he said this is 1950s technology the world has moved on we are no longer intimidated by uh, uh, that it's not uh, you know, them coming closer to us, you know, to put us within range of their weapons, they're putting themselves potentially within range of our weapons. Exactly. So that, that was what he said. He also, by the way, uh, also confirmed, or rather he, he also made exactly the same point about these various uh, um, uh, movements around the Middle East, in Iraq, in Yemen, uh, wherever. He said, these are not Iranian proxies. These are allies. We are we are friends with them. We work with them. But in, Excuse me. in no sense do we control them. We don't uh, we don't give orders to them. And if we did give orders to them, if we did control them in that kind of way, they would not have the deep roots in their societies, which they which they actually do. Because it's the very fact that the very thing that makes them strong is that they're deeply rooted and based within their societies. There's just two things, and I, 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 I'm going to uh, wrap up there. But there's two big, big, two questions, quite big questions in some ways. But the first is about the Israeli cabinet, because it, um, I've been hearing all kinds of people, I've to some extent gone along with this view myself, by the way, which is that the United States 
holds the key, that he can somehow bring this whole situation under control. He's got political problems at home, and but if he can sort these out and decides to bring this whole thing under control, then it can. But, you know, listening to what you've been saying, which has now been corroborated for me by many people, these very ideological people in an Israeli cabinet, in the Israeli cabinet, with these eschatological ideas, people who think like that, who have those sort of beliefs, well, my experiences, and I have come across people like that, is that they are impossible to reason with and control. You can come along and say to them, well, you know, we will withhold, you know, some weapons here or impose some sanctions on you there. That isn't going to impress people like that at all, particularly if they're starting to fear that their overall project, you know, setting up the temple and all of that, is beginning to slip out of their grasp. So that, that's one thing I wanted to ask you. And the other is about the Gulf states, because what we've seen over the last couple of days, and this pivots us all this, pivots us back to Moscow, this extraordinary reception <laughs> that the Gulf states um, uh, you know, put on. And of course, we've had the rapprochement with Iran that the Saudis have conducted, the decision of two of the Gulf states to join the BRICS. Is that perhaps, because it's, I mean, this has been a little difficult for me to understand. Is this perhaps a product of that fear of these social movements that you're talking, you've been just talking about? The fact that the war in Yemen turned out terribly wrong. The fact that Syria didn't turn out well either. A sense that American power is receding, that there's these new movements, these new feelings of the Middle East. So what do you do? You can't rely on the Americans anymore. So you try and huddle under the Chinese and the Russians instead. Just, just I mean, I, I don't know that there's any real answer to the second question. But anyway, have you any thoughts about these two things? Yes, I have. I'll do the second one first, because this, the one before is a very interesting question. But the, the second one is, um, you know, I think Saudi believes, and I think with some cause, that the U.S. is deliberately lowering the price of oil, like they did against um, um, uh, Russia in, when was it, 87, was it, 97, um, uh, and crashed the price of oil. And they, Saudi thinks that this is happening now. Um, uh, uh, and so does Russia, and HealthSec cutting back on um, cutting production. Because they all think that you know this is a phase, and then actually we're going to see a big spike in the price of oil when because you know there's no there's no new no new oil coming into into play, um, and I think you know uh, uh, I think Russia has some advice from that earlier period. First of all, against the advice of Nabil Lina at the time, it broke the peg. Uh, of the ruble and had the ruble floating so that it didn't feel the effects either on the budget or on the costs of the the oil companies. Um, but it was underpanned by China, and China would come in and um, uh, support um, the currency. And I think we are seeing very much the same sort of things. I would think that um, 
Russia is saying, possibly, this is speculation, but I would say Russia is saying to them, listen, you know, if, if this gets, if the price goes down further, break the link with the dollar, and then we'll have your back. We'll take, you know, if you've got dollar debts, as they almost certainly have in commitments, all right, we'll give you the dollars to pay them, or at least China, who has a surplus of these, can pay off your debts, and, uh, and you can repay China with one or some other currency of your choice. And um, I think some changes are going to take place. I don't know that that's the, what they had in mind, but I think there's obviously a lot of talk about you know, how to manage, because you know, the BRICS is a commodity um, king now, and they are going to not allow America to set the price of commodities. They're going to set the price of commodities. I mean, it's almost like McKinder reversed. I mean, you know, the heartland has the commodities and the raw materials, and the West doesn't. Um, and that was, you know, all the wars in the 19th century were about that. So I think something like this is going on. I don't know exactly what's going on, but I think it's all about the price of oil and about attempts by America to try and drive it down before the election. Because, you know, there's a perfect correlation between um, CPI and um, uh, gasoline prices in, in the States. The first question, the earlier question, uh, is first of all, I am perhaps a little contrarian. I, I served on American committee, um, the one um, that was done by Clinton with Senator Mitchell is in charge. And I discovered exactly how limited are the American powers with Israel at that time. I mean, we'd go along and Senator Mitchell would say, I want these checkpoints removed. And the prime minister at the time would say, yes, yes, we'll do all that for you. And I said to the, uh, said to the senator, just you know, give me a day or so. Let me just check. And I came back the next day and said, yes, they removed all those checkpoints that they promised you, and they reimposed them within 24 hours. And, you know, even with, you know, the presidential backing, the, you know, I don't think it's as easy as that, because basically um, Israel controls the lobby, and Israel controls Congress, all of Congress virtually, I mean, is, is in the pocket. They're not going to allow any president in the White House to cut Israel off of its weapons or to cut its finance completely. I mean, it will, it would mean the president taking on and winning against overpowering the lobby. And that's a big, big project. And I think therefore it's much more limited how much they can. And look at what happened yesterday. I mean, basically Sullivan was there and he fell into line with the Israeli demands. And, you know, we don't want to have trouble with Israel, is what the message was in the end. You know, let's, let's not, you know, I'm not here to cause tensions. But um, <clears throat> I think the second thing is, you know, who actually controls power? The, the two things that I've illustrated which would, you know, um, change the situation is something in the West Bank, the West Bank going on fire or on Al-Aqsa. Either of those, a storming of Al-Aqsa or the West Bank would set it on fire. Now, who controls those? 
Well, Smotrich controls the administration of the occupied territories and completely. And his colleague, Ben Gavir, is the national security minister and controls the, the, the forces in that area and the police on Temple Mount, Haram al-Sharif. He controls the, the, those police forces up there. So who actually has the control of the next stage of the situation? Not Netanyahu. These two very radical ministers, plus Levin and some of the others, but even the rest of the cabinet have moved. Netanyahu has had, a, a, I would say, an extraordinary success by, first of all, relying on public opinion. 90% approve of what's happening in Gaza, of the Israeli public. Absolute. And what's more, they're getting more and more approval. I mean, they watch these videos that the IDF have put out of the 7th of October, getting more and more emotional about it. And so he's now giving this um, illusion that this is, you know, a grand fight. What we are engaged in is an epic battle of good versus evil, a Manichaean vision. This is our new independence struggle. We are fighting a war, not of choice, but of necessity that we are coming into. And we all have to get ready for this big struggle that we're going through. And so he's dressing it up in Manichaean, apocalyptic. He's talking about the Amaleks. The Amaleks were a tribe in the Bible that were destroyed. Um, all of these things, it's working. <clears throat> you know, I, I don't know. It's not that he's got his whole base back, but he's, who knows? He may not succeed, but he may. I mean, he's, he's, he's moving in that direction. Again, as I say, this is, we're talking about a metaphysical politics, a revolutionary politics. Not the old thing. Well, let's sit down with Abomazen and talk about him going back to talks <laughs> for a two-state solution. I'm only coughing, not choking on the idea, but perhaps I am too. Anyway, so no, I don't think it's, I don't, I mean, nice thought, you know, there are places where the Americans have sway. But I mean, on all of the things, I mean, you know, Sullivan came in saying we're going to insist that it finishes in January. And at the end of it, and then, you know, the defense minister went in and he said, oh, I told him, I told him very clear, we'll need months, not weeks, to finish off in Gaza. And um, Sullivan said, okay. I was curious, so you, I was interested in what you mentioned with, uh, you know, Russia, China would like to influence the price of uh, of. Uh, of oil and yeah, energy, but uh, I was a bit taken back by this uh, recent visit by Putin to the region when you saw him uh, having this very enthusiastic, uh, almost high school uh, handshake with uh, uh, with uh, the Saudis, and then of course going to UAE and uh, having this guy colored with the Russian flag, and it, it just made me wonder if. Uh, the extent to which uh, I guess both Russia and China would seek to if not take advantage, but uh, but but make this uh, crisis work in its advantage, as they see 
the U.S. obviously standing is not uh, the same in in the region. Well, what uh, I know that these countries wouldn't necessarily want to decouple, but uh, at least diversify their economies. How, how do you see? Do you see any efforts by either Russia or China to 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 take advantage of this situation, or any any takers, I guess, in the region from the Saudis to or then any of the other, the Gulf states seeking to uh, well fundamentally change. Uh, yeah, the the format of the region. Yeah, why wouldn't they take advantage? Whatever, why not? Of course, they'll take advantage of it. I mean, this is what you know. What's going to happen with the BRICS in this next period? I mean, they. Owe, I don't think they feel they owe anything to the United States or to uh, to Europe. Yeah, they'll take advantage of it, uh, no doubt. And um, they're in a position to take advantage of it, as far as I can see. I, I, I should say that, of course, in, I, in, I, I've been in contact with people both in China and in Russia over the last couple of weeks. Mm. And they both tell me one thing, that in China, um, feeling on this conflict in Gaza is running very strong. Very strong. Very, very strong in China. You go onto social media there, it is absolutely. Uh, and the Chinese government has to take that into account. And I've also heard that in Russia, it is also running very, very strong. True. And in fact, the opinion polls, because the, you know, there are lots of opinion polls done in Russia. It's a country which is, thrives on opinion polls. But the, the, the feeling is so strongly expressed there that the, that the Kremlin has actually said, you know, to, to, to publish these results, we still have to keep some kind of contacts with the Israelis. And if uh, um, these results started to appear, it, 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 it might make some problems for us. So again, the Russian government has to take this into account. And sure. there's, there's a lot of people in Russia anyway who are of Muslim uh, belief. And I noticed that Kad Kadyrov, Kadyrov was there at, uh, mm -hmm. with uh, Putin. I mean, the, the most striking thing, of course, was the photograph, um, uh, again, underlying what I said about Saudi Arabia, of, of um, the lady who's in charge of the central bank being introduced to MBS. I mean, that doesn't often happen. So no. there's something of that going on. Um, uh, uh, of course, I mean, this is part of it when I said that the BRICS could become almost a UN Security Council in embryo. I mean, not they're not trying to take over the Security Council, but it just doesn't work, the Security Council, at the moment. I mean, the resolutions are ignored if they, if they ever have a, a mandated revolution as opposed to an advisory one. Um, but I think, yes, um, Putin envisages, not now, but much later, he has the links to Iran. He has very close relations with Iran, with Syria, uh, with Hezbollah, with all these groups. And also he has links to, he has a, a million, you know, a, a million citizens living in uh, Israel. I think he will suggest, you know, the time will come when he'll say, okay, if you'd like some mediation, if you'd like someone to work something out, I'm not saying this is going to be, you know, two-state solution. I don't think that is on the agenda. Um, but if you want something worked out, uh, then I would be available. 
Uh, I don't know that's far down, and certainly no one mentioned it to me in those terms on it, but that's what I would, from my own sort of reading between the lines, I would think is going on. So he's deliberately sort of keeping the thing down to keep a little space for himself to, um, for the future. He, he said as much. He actually said as much in a recent uh, um, interview that he did, that, you know, mm. that they do have all of these links, and if people want to talk to them about finding ways forward, mm. do so. Mm. It's also made it very clear, by the way, again, if you have to parse his words carefully, that the point about the two-state solution is that it is the international consensus at the moment, but that any final conclusive settlement of this has to be negotiated and agreed by the parties themselves which seems to actually suggest that it might not be the two-state solution in its classic form but he's sticking with that at the moment because yeah. he can that's what people you know the general assembly and those places can rally behind that's the, that's the sort of the common uh, the consensus language I mean, even people who don't believe in it use it because this is how you sort of manage politics. Exactly. I don't think it's. Uh, <coughs> I don't think it means much in terms of where Russia thinks things are going. Um, well, uh, this is. I, I'm basically. I, I, I've run through all the questions and comments mm -hmm. I wanted to make. I don't know whether Glenn has any more, but if if not. But perhaps you do, Glenn. I'm watching. Uh, just yeah. one, one, one final one. I was yeah. uh, well. You kind of touched on it to some extent. I was just wondering. Seems <coughs> uh, a commonality in most wars these days, at least the past few decades, has been the lack of an exit strategy. It's certainly true in the Ukraine <laughs> now, but also, also in Israel. I mean, but how, how do you see this? Uh, how, how, how? Well, what is the end game here? Because we can't really go back to the way things were. Yet I don't see any clear path forward. How how does Israel get out of this? You think, or uh, not just Israel, but uh, yeah, the but all, all the conflicting parties. I, uh, easy question. <laughs> I, I I did give you an answer to that earlier, but it was that there isn't a way out. Uh, that's obvious to it. They that they probably are going to go in deeper and. Having made you know one mistake, will make another mistake, and I don't know where that will end up. I mean, then we're getting into a, you know into a sort of really you know crystal ball gazing about what will be the consequences. Uh, as other, I I think that other states, it will not other states, but other parts of the region will become. It will become a wider war. It'll become a deeper war. And I don't know where it will end, but I think there's a going to there is a great effort being made to avoid it becoming a, a destructive, all-consuming war. Um, uh, but it is probably heading towards a wider war and a more serious conflict in the region. And um, uh, I don't know. I imagine that's what said Mohammed Morandi probably suggested to you. To it, guess. It is, it's exactly what he said. Mm. It is essentially exactly what he said. So, so I I don't know. Is there a way out? I, I don't at this stage. You know, <clears throat> no. You know, I've always, uh, uh, and I think I said to you before, it's probably not 
I mean, diplomats get very angry when you say these sort of things to them, but I've had to say it many times because I've spent a lot of time in conflicts um, that I say, you know, uh, <clears throat> there are times when, you know, a political solution is not available and the parties involved are going to go through a trial of strength, um, perhaps on both sides, and only at the end of the trial of strength, maybe the tide changes and this is the point at which you can actually produce a, a solution. But to come in with a solution too early and to push it too hard can actually be counterproductive because then they it's everything that they stand against because they want a trial of strength because they're confident they will win in a trial of strength. They can be right or they can be very wrong, but they don't want to, you know, the the issue to be a diversionary issue. I think that's why, you know, Netanyahu very clearly says, you know, I won't, you know, I'm not going to have a two-state solution. We're not going to do this. I'm the only one who stands to make sure that there will be no Palestinian state on our land. I'm the only one that can do this. I know how to manage the Americans. I can take us there. And so, you know, the trial of strength probably has to happen. It's sort of in the nature of the participants. I used to quote, you know, that old Greek um, saying about tragedy, that, you know, tragedy is something that, you know, comes apart, comes about, um, and that it is necessary because of the nature of the participants and that they can't stop it happening. And it happens because it's in their nature for this to happen because they can't pull themselves uh, back from things. And I think, you know, yes, we are on the sort of, in the beginnings of some sort of tragedy because the nature of the participants in this, I think, are not really capable uh, of emerging from the, 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 the expectations of this tragedy unfolding. Oh, on that, and by the way, you're, you're quite right about tragedy. My, my aunt used to act in them, so I should know. <laughs> um, um, but can, can I just say, uh, from my side, thank you again, um, um, Alistair Crook. I hope we have you again on our programs. And this has been a, an absolutely amazing program in every respect. Well, thank you very much. And thank you for saying that. That's very kind of you. Not really merited, but nice to hear, of course. Well, thanks for me as well. Thank you, Glenn. Thank you very much for arranging it and hosting it.